Thank you, Lynette. And uh, do please keep your Bibles open, page 274 to 1 Samuel, chapter 4. Let me pray as we begin. That couplet we sang in that last song, words of power that can never fail, let their truth prevail over unbelief. Lord God, we bring you our hearts, so often full of unbelief. By your Spirit, would your words of power prevail in our lives, open our eyes to see what you're saying, and soften our hearts that we might become more like your Son, Jesus, more obedient to you um, as a result of what you've said tonight. We ask it in his name. Amen. A couple of years ago, there was a census, and it came with a little surprise. Over the past 10 years, a significant increase in those today who identify as pagans. And it's not just crusty old people doing this, young people who are identifying as pagans. And you can go on TikTok, I'm not sure I recommend it, and see them at it. They're hexing political leaders, they're trying to start all sorts of rituals. What are we to make of this rise in paganism? Well, I think it reflects something that someone once said, trying to summarize G.K. Chesterton. He said, when people choose not to believe in God, they do not thereafter believe in nothing, they then become capable of believing in anything. Because that's the thing about neo-paganism, its appeal has nothing to do with truth claims. It doesn't really make truth claims. There's a different question underlying its appeal. It's not, is this true? It's, does this work? In a chaotic world, when nothing does what I want it to, can I harness spiritual powers to get my agenda to happen? That's what's underlying it. Not, does this, not is this true, but does this work? It's a spirituality of control. But here's the thing 1 Samuel 4 shows us. You don't have to be a neo-pagan to make this mistake. It is perfectly possible to be one of God's people and still to have a spirituality of control. It is easier than you think to treat God as if the only question that matters is, does it work for me and my agenda? And it is a tragedy when we do. So far in 1 Samuel, things have not been good for the people of Israel, but God is at work. He has a kingdom agenda to bring his rule to his scattered people. And he has a worship agenda to ensure that they can gather before him in his presence. And if you were here last week, we saw him raising up Samuel as a prophet to speak his word. Things are underway. And you might, in fact, expect Samuel, who who was there just before our reading, can you see that? Samuel's word came to all Israel. You might expect him to be the dominant figure in the story. But surprisingly, he isn't. He steps into the background, and we won't meet him again until a little bit later in chapter 7. Before we can see God at work through Samuel, first, we have to see something else. Tonight, we're going to see the two painful lessons Israel had to learn when they tried to use God. Here's the first thing they learned. They learned God would rather be defeated than used as a talisman. Our passage introduces the battle against the Philistines. The Philistines have been oppressing God's people ever since about halfway through Judges and all the way so far in 1 Samuel. 
And they are considerably more formidable than the other enemies that Israel has faced in the land. It's a significant battle. And verse 2, it doesn't go well. Israel are routed. They lose 4,000 people. How do they respond to this defeat? Have a look at verse 3. They ask, why did the Lord bring defeat on us today before the Philistines? Now, that's actually a good start because their question acknowledges that God is in charge. He's the one who's in control. But what they say next is terribly wrong-headed. They continue, let us bring the ark of the Lord's covenant from Shiloh so that he may go with us and save us from the hand of our enemies. They started acknowledging that God was in charge, but now they're not treating him as if he's in charge. They're treating him as if they're the ones in charge and they can make him do what they want. We'll say a lot more about the Ark of the Covenant next week, but just for now, it was basically a box that was right at the heart of the tabernacle, containing the the, the tablets of the law given to Moses, a symbol of God's power and presence. And what Israel are thinking, the elders of Israel in verse 3, is, look, if we bring God onto the battlefield, He'll have to come through for us. We'll we'll definitely win that time. And verse 5, if you look down, it's a massive morale boost for Israel. It gets the Israelite troops shouting. And over in the Philistine side, verse 7, they are terrified. Verse 8, they actually have the exodus in their memory. They're aware that Israel has this powerful God, and they're terrified of what will happen if they have to face him. And so they're spurred on to fight harder. And what we get in chapter 4 is a very painful irony. Israel, God's people, to whom he has revealed himself, are acting like pagans, sending out the Ark of the Covenant as if it were a talisman or magical object. And the Philistines, who actually are pagans, they're the ones who fear the God they don't even know. And because the Bible tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, The side that fears him is the side that wins and wins emphatically. Verse 10, we see that there's another defeat, but this time much, much worse for Israel. Not just 4,000 dead as in the initial skirmish, but now 30,000. And the ark that they had taken out as a talisman captured. Israel learned the hard way. God would rather be defeated than used as a talisman. Because that's what they're doing to God. They're using him. And it's personal. Go back to verses 3 and 4, and you'll see the elders know exactly what they're doing. They call for the ark of the Lord's covenant. Covenant. They're basically saying, God, we have a deal. You made a covenant with us, so you better keep up your end of the bargain. Yeah, bring the ark of the covenant. Verse 4, we talk about that, that the Lord Almighty... And that actually means Lord of hosts, God of armies. You can hear the cogs turning in their heads. He's the God of armies. He simply has to come through for us. How could the God of armies lose to these Philistines? How could the covenant God of Israel lose face by losing in battle? He has got to do what we want him to. And they learn that God will not play by their rules. They're treating God as if he is the most powerful piece on their chessboards, but they're the player moving all the pieces. And it's unacceptable. 
They seem to care and value uh, when it comes to having God on their side, but they don't care at all about whether they are on his. And remember, this is personal. It's deeply offensive. Maybe you've had the experience of being used by someone, and you will know it's an awful thing. Someone who shows an interest in you, but then it turns out they weren't interested in you. They were interested in something else that they realized you could get them. And sometimes you only realize that when they get the thing they want and they drop you like a used tissue. It's horrible. I don't think we should treat anyone like that. But we definitely shouldn't treat God like that. It's unspeakably ungrateful to the God who made us and made us for himself. And if we do, we will learn the hard way. God will not play by those rules. And so what we see on this day is that he is the God of armies, but he uses the Philistine armies to judge his people. Yes, he is the God of covenant. He made a deal, but Israel had broken that deal. Look down again at verse 4. Who is it taking the ark of the covenant of God? It's Hophni and Phinehas. As if a holy God can be represented by such wicked men without there being consequences. Israel learned God would rather be defeated than used as a talisman, play by their rules. Second thing they have to learn, God would rather be exiled than coexist with corruption. He'd rather be exiled than coexist with corruption. You see, this taking the ark out of the tabernacle is not a temporary thing. From this point on, the tabernacle from the time of Moses will never be restored. For centuries, it has been the meeting place between God and humanity, but now it will never again play that role. And so the story moves to Shiloh. Verse 12, a messenger brings word to the town. And anyone can see this messenger and just recognize from his appearance the news will not be good. But of course, 98-year-old Eli can't do that. And so the messenger has to explain to him. And at this point, I wonder what you've made of Eli so far. He's a complex figure, isn't he? Anyone who says the Bible is full of black and white morality tales which are free of nuance has never read 1 Samuel. Think about Eli. He's, he's actually concerned for the ark. If you look at verse 14, he's anxious about the ark. And yet that never translates into holiness in how he treated God. He appears to have been a good father figure to Samuel, helping Samuel hear from the Lord. And yet that never translated into being a good father to his sons, Hophni and Phinehas, never restrained their evil. And God has been patient with him. He's been with us over the past few weeks, warning after warning in chapter 2 and chapter 3. But it's not been enough. Eli is a tragic figure. He knows what he's doing is wrong. He's too weak to repent of it. And so in one day, God's judgment against Eli comes. His word comes true. The messenger speaks to him. Verse uh, 17, he tells him, the Philistines have triumphed, his sons have been killed, and the ark has been captured. Verse 18, when he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell backwards off his chair by the side of the gate. His neck was broken, and he died, for he was an old man, and he was heavy. He had led Israel for 40 years. God 
brings down the mighty from his seat. And at this moment, Eli's daughter-in-law gives birth. And it is not a happy day. If you cast your mind back to chapter one, she is an anti-Hannah, because this birth is not joyful, but a day of terrible defeat. And so she names her boy Ichabod, which is a, is a question, where is the glory? Verse 22, she said, the glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. Ichabod, where is the glory? And there's a darkly comic answer to her question. In one sense, the glory is around Eli's waist. There's a bit of Hebrew wordplay going on here. Don't know if you like puns and wordplay, I love it. In Hebrew, the word for glory and the word for heavy are exactly the same word. Because in Hebrew, the idea of glory is something substantial and weighty, the real thing. The glory of God is not a lightweight thing. And that's why, back in verse 18, we read that Eli was heavy. It's not just fat shaming for the sake of it. It's talking about how Eli, we heard this in chapter two, has been fattening himself by eating the fat portions that belonged only to the Lord. Fattening himself. What does that mean? Eli would not give glory to God. And the glory he wouldn't give to God ended up bringing him down to the grave. He lies crushed beneath his own weight. Where is the glory? Eli, crushed. It's his downfall. And we're told that he had led the people, judged the people for 40 years. It turns out that 40 years had just been another wilderness period for the people of God. And the Shiloh Tabernacle will never recover. Never again will it be the place where God's presence dwells among the people. Because God would rather be exiled than coexist with corruption. I wonder where you think Israel learned to treat God like an object. They probably learned it from Eli, the way he used God all these years, taking what belonged only to God, overlooking terrible abuse as if God would never do anything about it. Eli was using God, but in the end, God would rather be exiled than coexist with that corruption. And you know, centuries later, the Bible will return to Shiloh. Jeremiah, speaking to the people of God, will plead with them not to think that just because they have the temple of God with the ark inside it, that they are somehow immune to God's judgment. He says, chapter 7, verse 12, or rather God says in Jeremiah, go now to the place in Shiloh where I first made a dwelling for my name and see what I did to it because of the wickedness of my people, Israel. What's the point God is making? He's saying, I know how to move house, and I am prepared to abandon sanctuaries, and I will not coexist with corruption in those who are meant to serve me. Two painful lessons Israel had to learn. God would rather be defeated than used as a talisman. God would rather be exiled than coexist with our corruption. Which leaves us with a couple of sobering questions. First, are we using God for our own agenda? Are we making the mistake that Israel were? Are we interested in God because we're really interested in something else that he can get us? If that's true, it's not God we're really worshipping. What we're really worshipping is that 
thing that we're treating him as a means to getting. And it's a terrible way to treat God. And as we've seen from God's word, it will not end well. And let me say this gently. It will often be in our setbacks and disappointments in life where this danger is greatest, where perhaps we'll experience the clash between our agenda and God's agenda. And it's moments like that where we really have to ask ourselves, are we using him? Please don't mishear me. As believers, we have an amazing freedom to cry out to God with honest prayers in the moments of our suffering. We do. But that's not the same as holding God to our agenda and blaming him when he doesn't follow it. And can I say, if you're aware that you've been using God, the way back is very simple. It's all about getting things back the right way round. Not treating God as a a piece on your chessboard, but acknowledging him as the sovereign Lord. Not wondering about whether he's on your side, but rejoicing that in Christ you get to be on his. Are we using God for our own agenda? Second sobering question for us. Are we expecting God to coexist with corruption in our lives? If we're just using God, of course we will expect that. We'll expect him to make his peace with anything and everything going on in our lives because, of course, it's not just about him. But if we know he's a holy God, we will tremble at the thought we might be doing that. And can I say this is not just a mistake that individuals can make. It's a sobering thing to be in 1 Samuel 4 as a Church of England minister and in a Church of England church. Because right now, some of our bishops, entrusted with significant office and privilege, have been painfully open about their desire to move the Church of England's doctrine and practice away from God's words. And we need to hear from God's word tonight that he will not coexist with corruption. He will not honor those who dishonor him. It is not something we can take lightly that some of our bishops are choosing to do that. It's something that should cause us to cry out to him, something we should lament, and something that should turn us in our own lives to pursue his holiness and to pray for the repentance of those in authority making some of these moves. Are we expecting God to coexist with corruption? Yes, we have known real blessing through the Church of England. I have, personally. But we cannot forget Shiloh God knows how to move house. He knows how to abandon sanctuaries. Some sobering questions for us there. Are we using God for our own agenda? Are we expecting him to coexist with corruption? But as we finish, let's return to where 1 Samuel 4 ends. With that question from Phineas' wife, where is the glory And perhaps if we'd been there for this chapter, we'd think to ourselves, God is absent. He's left the room. He's not here with us. That's certainly what the daughter-in-law seems to think. But just remember, this is what it looks like for God's word to Samuel to be fulfilled. This is actually everything going according to plan. So God is not absent. He's present in this chapter, painfully present, because he's present to judge. But that's good news, because as Peter will write, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17, 
It is God's way for judgment to begin at the house of God. Yes, for the ark of God to be captured was a terrible thing. But for those with eyes to see it, this is actually a gospel moment. Yes, Israel have broken their deal with God. They have broken the covenant. And if you go to Deuteronomy 28, you can see that there are consequences for doing that. And the most painful consequence is exile. Look back on this chapter. Who should go into exile? Israel. That is what they deserve after what they've done. Who does go into exile? God. The ark goes into exile, into enemy territory. And next week we will see what he does there. But for now, please don't miss the gospel picture this shows us. God will judge disobedience. But what he's showing us is that on the day of his judgment, he is the one who will endure the shame of defeat. That is what God is like. He's preparing us to understand that the ultimate moment of his judgment, that judgment will fall on him. The horror of exile being cast out of the presence of God, that is something that will fall on Jesus Christ, on God himself. Turns out Jesus will carry the painful burden of all the ways we have used God or tried to. Of all the corruption we've asked God to coexist with, he will carry it to the cross and shoulder it there for us so that there can be forgiveness for wayward people like us. So that people who are always trying to fit God into their agenda, always asking him to put up with more sin, can have a way back to him who should be exiled, you and me. That is the miracle of Good Friday, that God chooses to be exiled first. In the light of that, let's come before the Lord. Perhaps let's come clean if there are ways we've been using him. Perhaps let's bring before him a right anguish about the corruption in his house. Give us a moment to do that, and I'll lead us in a final prayer.